1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The president of Burundi wants to run for a third term. Problem is, his country can't afford to hold a poll. So he's instituted an election tax. For some officials, that's become an excuse for extortion. For some citizens, a reason to flee the country. And it's easy to imagine that you really, really want that next promotion. But be careful what you wish for. Our columnist updates a half-century-old management maxim that makes that next step up the ladder look less attractive. First up, though. Every year in Tokyo, a pride parade winds its way through the city. There are people waving rainbow flags on floats, dancing all around. But it's not a very big parade. And civil rights for gay, transgender and queer people in Japan are still in their early stages. Same-sex marriage is not recognized. Some people are trying to change that. I would like to fight this war together with sexual minorities all around Japan. This is activist Kenji Aiba. On Valentine's Day, he and his partner joined 12 other same-sex couples across the country, suing to demand the right to marry. Their cases continue. They hope Japan will follow the example of Taiwan, which recently legalized same-sex marriage, the only country in Asia to do so. Their cases continue. Other activists are using next year's Olympic Games in Tokyo to pressure businesses and the government to change.
2: We have to use the Olympic and Paralympic Games to change the society more friendly to LGBTQ people.
1: Aya Noguchi is an academic who focuses on gender and sexuality in sports and advocates for rights for LGBTQ people. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer.
2: And also this is kind of the moment of the people to know what is happening, what what is the issues of the uh, people who are LGBTQ. So we can take action to change the society.
1: As well as pressuring politicians to make changes to the law, she wants businesses to become more welcoming to different sexualities. And of course, for athletes to feel they can be open.
2: Yeah, it's still conservative. That, I think that is why Japan, we don't many athletes who are op- coming openly coming out because society still have the conservative perspective of LGBTQ. Especially older age people doesn't really understand the situation of LGBTQ.
1: Last month, opposition parties submitted a bill in the Japanese parliament, the Diet, that would legalize same-sex marriage. But for the Conservative ruling party, that would have been a big step.
3: Well, the Diet ended its official business for this, the current session, having failed to pass a bill to legalize uh,
1: same-sex marriage. David McNeil reports on Japan for The Economist.
3: That was considered a blow To activists, it wasn't unexpected, but uh, many activists had hoped
1: that Japan might follow Taiwan. So why is that a trickier proposition in Japan?
3: Well, I mean, I guess it's partly social, partly political. The Liberal Democratic Party uh, is conservative. They don't invest a lot of time or energy in what we might call progressive causes. There are hardline conservatives in the party who feel very strongly that they don't want uh, gay marriage in Japan. Most famously, last year, you had uh, an ally of the prime minister, Shinzo Abe, uh, who called gay couples uh, unproductive, meaning that they, they don't have children.
1: And so how does that play out for for people who are gay in Japan? Do you, what, what do you know about what it's like to be gay in Japan?
3: You know, what surprised me is that in many ways, Japan is very tolerant towards gay people. There is one of Asia's, if not the Asia's biggest gay quarter, uh, Nichome and Shinjuku. Uh, it's a one square mile bustling kind of warren of gay bars, uh, shops and um, clubs for, uh, for gay and lesbian people. And um, it's pretty racy. And I think the attitude is... Um, that there, there's tolerance uh, for the gay lifestyle, uh, but there isn't the same kind of political activism, if you like, that you have in other parts of the world. There isn't uh, a strong push from the political world to, to, to change things. Um, I think the attitude is basically don't ask, don't tell in many cases.
1: Uh, it, it sounds as if there's some level of kind of keeping keeping this quiet. I mean, what, what about in popular media, in TV shows, in, in movies and so on? Are, are there uh, popular representations of gay people?
3: There are a lot of um, uh, gay people represented there. In fact, there are gay stars on TV, outwardly gay stars. But they tend to be um, exoticized, if you like. They're, um, they're for entertainment purposes um there to be um to be gawked at and so on and i think that angers some gay people here because they they want to be normal they want to have a normal lifestyle and in some ways this depiction of uh, gay people on tv is rather unhelpful to them
1: and you mentioned Taiwan being the uh, the sort of the example country, the only country in Asia to, to legalize same sex marriage. Um, which I mean, that, that puts Asia very much out of step with much of the rest of the world, Europe, and North America, um, even uh, conservative places like Latin America. Why is Asia different?
3: Well, that's a very big question. You know, if you if you look at um, parts of Asia, for example, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, there's. Um, there's outward repression of gay people and arguably it's getting worse. And obviously that has to do with uh, the governments that they have there. Um, uh, But other parts, you know, most notably Taiwan, but also India, uh, Bangladesh, uh, governments there uh, tend to take um, a don't ask, don't tell attitude. Um, And I think it has to do with the politics of the region. It has to do with a history of repressive governments. It has to do with a very traditional Notion of the family, part uh, in some countries it has to do with Islam, um, and uh, also you know it has to do with the lack, I think, of um, of political activism from the ground, which was slow to start up in some of these places.
1: And and how do you think? Uh, Japanese people see see the situation with the conservative government, but you know with some some gay presence in society in entertainment the the whole works where where does Where do the people stand on average do you think
3: well that 's probably the most interesting part of what 's happening at the moment because if you look at the disparity between politics what 's happening at the in the diet at the top of society and the rest of japan, uh, it is growing quite stark i mean there 's nearly there was a survey by Dentsu, the advertising company, um, recently, which said that 80% of Japanese in their 20s to 50s are in favour of legalising uh, same-sex uh, marriages. Um, there are there's a lot of pressure from the business community now uh, to, uh, to on the government to change the laws because what they say is that. Uh, repressive laws or just even not allowing people to marry will um, will work against japan 's attempt to bring in foreign talent and will embarrass Japan as the Olympics uh, nears um, so what you see uh, around Japan is sort of local governments trying to change the rules about two dozen now um, have allowed uh, people to um, uh, to have these certificates which showed at the game which you can present for example to Uh, to real estate agents to prove that you're gay and that will stop, The hope is that that will stop discrimination against them. So all around, I think you see this pressure, this momentum building to change the way things are. It's just a question of how long that's going to take,
1: I think. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If a government can't afford to fund an election, what should it do? For Burundi's president Pierre Nukrunziza, the solution is simple. Force his impoverished people to stump up the cash. His election tax is just one of the factors driving the country's refugee crisis. 400,000 Burundians have fled over the past four years.
4: I'm based in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I live relatively close to the Burundian border.
1: Olivia Ackland reports for The Economist.
4: Since 2015, there have been thousands of Burundian refugees crossing the border seeking refuge in Congo, fleeing from ongoing political violence in their country. This has been particularly bad since 2015, when the president, Pierre Nkurunziza decided that he was going to run for a disputed third term, which is against the constitution. There was a failed coup, and ever since, the president's men have been energetically stifling dissent. There was a report from Human Rights Watch in 2018 that said an estimated 1,700 people were killed in targeted attacks between 2015 and 2018. Bloated corpses were found weighed down with rocks at the bottom of Lake Tanganyika and decapitated bodies have been found in forests across the country. This led to a lot of international donors pulling out of the country, most notably the EU, who were funding about half of the government's annual budget And so ever since, the government have been strapped for cash and they have an election coming up next year. And so they're basically asking their own impoverished people to fund the election.
1: Burundi is one of the world's poorest nations, located in Africa's fragile Great Lakes region. When the political crisis erupted in 2015, the country was still reeling from a civil war that had ended 10 years earlier. More than 300,000 people were killed in the conflict, between the minority Tutsi dominated army and mainly Hutu rebel groups. Following a peace deal, Mr. Nukrenziza emerged as president.
4: Pierre Nukrenziza himself is an interesting man. He was once a sports teacher turned rebel turned president. He was leader of a Hutu rebel group during the civil war, which ended in 2005. And when he was fighting, he was injured and hiding in a swamp. And it was then that he had this vision that he was one day going to be president of Burundi. And so since, he's developed a messiah complex. And last year, his party announced that his new title was Eternal Supreme Guide. And he declared that God had appointed him as leader of Burundi. He also changed the constitution so that he could stay in power until as long as 2034. But nonetheless, to keep some stability in his country, he's keen for an election to go ahead in 2020 in which he may be divinely reinstated.
1: Mr. Nukrenziza's election tax is meant to pave the way for his divine reinstatement. But as Olivia learned from the refugees she met in Congo, this tax has become a pretext for extortion.
4: I went to the town of Uvera, which is just a few kilometers from the Burundian border, And I spoke to lots of Burundian refugees on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. I had to find a discreet location around the back of this sort of desolate hotel because there are a lot of Burundian government spies in the town. And so it's not safe for them to openly talk to a journalist. People told me various different stories. I met one man who told me that he'd escaped Burundi after his photo was taken in an anti-government manifestation. And he doesn't want to go back for two reasons, really. One, because it's dangerous, and two, because he can't afford to pay this election tax.
1: So what did he tell you about how this election tax is being collected, extorted?
4: So the official election tax is actually quite small, but the problem is that those tasked with collecting it are the youth league of the government, and they're the most feared thugs in the country. They're called the Mboniakuri. And this has basically given them the green light to go from house to house, extorting money, saying it's for the election tax, but it's not. So he said if they see that you're making money or you're going to the market laden with goods, then you become an obvious target and they repeatedly extort money from you.
2: If you sell your cow, uh, then when Rakure comes and they ask you the money, what you sell
3: If you go to the market, for example, you go with your banana, you go with the potatoes, you go with your your goats, they ask you the money.
1: And what if you refuse them or what if you simply don't have the money they're asking for?
4: He said if you refuse them, they can arrest you. And sometimes you're released once you've paid up. Sometimes if you disagree, they beat you up.
3: If you disagree to give the money that he asked you, they took a stick and they beat you.
4: And because they have the state on their side, if you try and fight them, then the police will just come and arrest you.
2: To found 10,000 Burundian francs, it is very hard. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a cow, it doesn't have a hen, it doesn't
3: have a goat or sheep. And to fund the school fees of the children, it is very hard. Mm-hmm. How to found that 10,000 Burundian francs for paying for the election? Mm-hmm.
1: And these are some of the world's poorest people to begin with right
4: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so in the last four years particularly burundi has sunk ever deeper into poverty 56 percent of children under five are malnourished which is a huge huge number and three-quarters of the population live below the poverty line gdp per capita has gradually shrunk every year since 2014 the economy is so dire in Burundi, that young women are crossing the border into Congo to work as prostitutes, where they can make marginally more money. And I went to speak to some of them in a brothel one evening. Uh-huh. What? How old is she? Twenty-five. I spoke to two of the women through my translator. They were both in their 20s, and they each had come to Congo after the political crisis in 2015, when the economic crisis also erupted in their country. One of them said that she'd come just to make enough money to feed her children, and you can make slightly better money in Congo.
0: She says even if they
3: have uh, their body are tired, but uh, tonight they can have uh,
4: five, five husbands. So they said five clients in a night would give them around 10,000 Congolese francs, which is about $6. And in Burundi, you might earn 4 or $5 a night.
1: And so besides the flood of refugees into Congo, I mean, has this broad crisis had any knock-on effects for the region?
4: Yeah, so Burundi's sort of ever-deepening crisis also poses huge problems for the fragile region. When Mr. Nukrunziza extended his term, he flouted the Arusha Accords, which basically ended the war in Burundi. And they promised democracy, and they also promised a power-sharing deal between the Hutu and Tutsi ethnic groups. These solutions could now collapse, which could reignite the same tribal tensions that also once led to a genocide in neighboring Rwanda, followed by a war in Congo.
1: And so how do you see this playing out? I mean, is this extortion, this politically motivated violence, is it only to get worse?
4: Yeah, so the withdrawal of international funds means that the world's paying less and less attention to Burundi and that allows the Mbonyakuri to continue their violent rampage through the country totally unabated. In 2015, after the president was re-elected, he promised that by the help of God, he would scatter his enemies like flour thrown in the air and he seems to be showing a pretty strong commitment to this promise.
1: Olivia, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: If you've just missed out on a promotion, it might be for the best. That's not just a platitude, though. There's plenty of research showing that the higher up the greasy pole you go, the worse it might get. You might become unhappy, stressed, even really
5: bad at your job. The Peter Principle by Lawrence Peter, it's a book that published 50 years ago, is that you get promoted to your level of incompetence. Philip Coggan writes Bartleby, The Economist's column on work and management. It's easy to understand. If you do your job well, your boss is impressed, you get promoted. That keeps happening until what point? The point at which you don't do your job well, your incompetence, so you don't get promoted. And the corollary of that is that if you are a senior person in a position for a long time, you're probably incompetent. If you weren't incompetent, you would have been promoted.
1: And so, how does all of that endemic incompetence affect workers?
5: Well, of course, it means that many workers are working for incompetent managers. There's been a study of sales workers, 40,000 sales workers in 131 firms. Those firms tended to follow the principle of promoting the best salesman. It sounds perfectly logical. The problem is, of course, that the best salesmen are not necessarily the best managers. What they're good at is ringing people up or getting them in a showroom, persuading them to buy a good. That's not the same thing as looking after the career interests of your staff and organizing rotors and all the rest of it. And they found that the best salespeople tended to have their staff produce worse sales records than the poorer salespeople when they got promoted. Now, there's a sort of Theory about this, a different principle, the Dilbert principle, named after the famous cartoon strip. So Scott Adams proposed that you promote the incompetent people, so he has the pointy haired boss, and thus you let the incompetent boss handle things like the paper clips and the holiday rotor and the pointless career reviews, while the rest of you get on with doing the actual job, engineers in the case of Dilbert.
1: But but what about these managers themselves? I mean, it can't be that everyone doesn't realize they're incompetent. They They must know that they are.
5: I think they do. I think a lot of people pursue promotion because it seems like a good thing. You get more money, you get more status, and then they find that in the end it doesn't pay off. So the example that sticks in my mind is my own father who – was a teacher spent much of his life trying to get promoted to become a headmaster. And when he was a headmaster, he was less happy because he was no longer teaching. So a lot of people get promoted and stop doing what they like doing in the first place. So the Bartleby curse, if you like, is that you get promoted and to a level when you're unhappy with your job. And when you're unhappy with your job, it often happens that you don't perform well. And secondly, that your work-life balance gets out of order. If you are a manager, the chances are that your boss always wants to contact you you at weekends that your staff feel the right to kick up any difficulties that they have to ask you to answer all their questions and so your time is not your own so if you pursue promotion just for the sake of it then you are likely to end up unhappy the trick is to reach the level of pay and status within your organization just below that level of unhappiness so say be a magazine columnist for example where you're reasonably paid but you're not having to order everybody else about
1: so the from from an employee's point of view that that seems like a good prescription. What about a prescription then for employers? What, what should they do to avoid i don't know concentrating incompetence or or fomenting unhappiness?
5: Well, I think they should not automatically assume to promote the best worker at a particular trait. So the best journalists are not the best managers, the best salesmen are not the best managers and so on. So you're looking for a different set of qualities in managers than you are from looking in technical staff or other staff. And that re- probably requires a bit of training and a bit more sophisticated assessment. I think that the great problem with companies is they tend to feel old Joe or old Sally deserves a promotion. They should be in charge. They've worked really hard and then they give it to them without considering whether it's suitable. Philip, thank you very much for your time. Now, get back to work. Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot.